Section 12 of The Desirable Alien at Home in Germany by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11. A Landgräfin and her Confessor. We solemnly did Marburg. The English mother of Joseph Leopold wished it. I always defer doing on principle. I prefer to let the spirit of the place sink well in before inspecting the monuments. One should happen on monuments. One should have an opportunity to stare long at their outsides before entering. And even on the footing of a mere tourist, is there any holier joy than to walk forth with faith and without a guidebook? Picking one's way among the garbage, the horrible everyday detritus of no particular street of the city you are living in, one comes suddenly upon some lovely flower of the Middle Ages, some gem of architecture, in a vile setting of hovels and flaunting shop signs. One realises that it is a relic of value, and has the pleasant sensation of having been slightly beforehand with the guidebook, which one consults as soon as one gets home. Guidebooks are strangely fallacious. But the first monument you see on issuing from the railway station at Marburg, itself a thing of beauty, is the Elizabethan Kirche with its two tall towers. If I had not known that it was the Elizabethan Kirche, I might have neglected this famous church that St. Elizabeth built and gave to the Catholics, and that Protestants stole. I may mention that I am never allowed to see a church purely as an archaeologist, or even as a student of architecture, which I am not. It is one of the circumstances of my case that the church militant view faces my own patient lack of interest on any other ground than artistic and historical ones. That great tourney of extermination of vested interests, which was the Reformation, is Joseph Leopold's sore point, and also his strong one as far as argument goes, it does add a distinct piment to travelling to go round the churches with a person who chooses to regard them all as hostages, grabbed from one side by another side, returned under treaty by that side, destroyed, rebuilt, and returned again according as dynasties flourished or fell all over the world. And in the deplorable main, the hostages have remained in the hands of the unbelievers. Yes, you took it from us is the phrase most often on Joseph Leopold's tongue, as my respectful so-called Protestant feet paddle along after the staid Dua Sacristan, treading on sacred flags that lead to the despoiled altar and to the arch over which the figure on the rood once bowed. And indeed, as far as the Elizabethan Kirche is concerned, it is a shabby story for Protz to hear. The two tall towers of St. Elizabeth's don't look a day older to me than, say, one of the colleges that, on the backs at Cambridge, brood over the smug, sullen waters with such a smart Tennysonian air of ancient peace. It is the kind of stone used in both German and English buildings which gives my ignorance that impression, and the fact that this is a living church, and one way or another has been steadily kept in repair. It does not look old enough to have been the scene, was it not the scene, of everybody's great picture, pictures mostly by R.A.'s, 
of which reproductions glare from over the mantelpiece of every inn parlour in England. One masterpiece greeted me on my return from Marburg, swelling proudly on the walls of the Tate Gallery. Fresh from services in the Elizabethan Kirche, I stood and looked at the decorous nude figure kneeling before the order of the chapel, while the stern priest, her confessor, stands behind her with the scourge in his hand. Daily he bruised and flagellated his royal penitent, and the people of Marburg were more scandalised than edified. Conrad of Marburg, the Dominican monk who had contrived to get possession of the body and soul of the Princess of Hungary, seems to me a thoroughly Irving-esque figure. Yet the great man never impersonated him. The story is curious and touching, compounded as it is of dim religious superstition and poetry. As the landgrave of Thuringia sat in his castle of the Wartburg among his minnesingers, there came to him a renowned poet and magician, Klingsor von Hunderland. The magician announced to the landgrave that that very night a child should be born, the destined consort of his son Louis. Her mother was Gertrud von Meren, the sister of St. Hedwig, and her father was King Andreas of Hungary and this child was to be a saint like her aunt. The landgrave lost no time, but sent messengers to demand the baby's hand in marriage for his son. And the daughter of the king of Hungary, which shows what important and powerful people the German landgraves were, was instantly rendered up and carried in a silver cradle to the Wartburg, where she was brought up with her prospective bridegroom, and in due course became his wife. She gave him, an ordinary unsaintly man, a great deal of trouble. The priest who domineered over her all her days and who procured her saintship began his teaching early. He made her a fanatic like himself. She gave all she had to the poor, and when her husband objected she managed to prosecute her charities in secret, and the supernatural powers connived. We all know the story of the loaves of bread that she was carrying in her apron when surprised by her husband, and how they were transmogrified as he peered to see and convict her of charity into flowers. But as one chronicler says, quote, she bestowed her arms without distinction. So when the tide of her fortunes turned, and she was reduced to begging for bread for herself and her child at Eisenach, she was rudely entreated, nay, thrown down in the mud by one of the very beggars she had benefited in her proud time. While the power of the Dominican monk lasted, she was supreme. He was secretly supported by the Pope, and usurping the office of heretical judge, arraigned citizens and petty nobility before his tribunal. It was not until he made an attack on the high nobility in the person of the Count von Zoms that that important personage rebelled, went to the Diet at Mayence, proved his innocence of the charges brought against him, and demanded reparation for his insulted honour. One of the archbishops, he of Treves, spoke for him. The king granted him what he asked, and gave over the monk to popular vengeance. Elizabeth was dead, and not even her sanctity could save him. 
but what power had been his through the queenly woman he had terrorised joseph leopold would not like me to say this but on the other hand i do not like to think of the midnight scourgings and the want of taste shown by the catholic victim she exhibited the wounds she had allowed conrad to inflict upon her body saying proudly behold the caresses of my confessor is not that speech in its simple serious raillery typical of the whole social mind of the middle ages but joseph leopold doesn't think st elizabeth a silly woman at all and he finds it quite natural that the benefited beggar woman should turn and throw her benefactress into the mud that to him seems perfectly natural he has no high opinion of human nature but wants to do all he can for it but to do good without respect of persons has always seemed to me a useless philanthropy joseph leopold has it against me that in the old days of the growler driven by the sour man in many capes i was twice summoned in one week for the extra sixpence i have always contended that the second summons was a put-up job and that two cabmen had laid their heads together for when the distance was measured in the one case i was found to be strictly within my rights i paid both claims one summons was to be attended on boxing day when i was away and the other in a distant court at camberwell rated by a friend for my over-strict interpretation of the proper fare why not pay the poor beggar the extra sixpence makes him happy i replied with the insouciance of youth it's all very well but i didn't come into the world to make cabmen happy st elizabeth evidently did as regards cabmen and their like and great was her fame there stand the two tall towers of her church to bear testimony to her scourgings her fortitudes her bitterness and the nullity of her rewards on this earth but no one thinks of the landgrave and his domestic happiness destroyed because his wife preferred the sanguinary caresses of her confessor to his no one worries about him but her shrine is beautiful and was gorgeous and her church was worth the robbing by protestants it is whitewashed now inside and all the mural paintings are obscured but there are one or two fine triptychs representing her and finally having drunk the protestant cup of bitterness to the dregs of joseph leopold's hands we took a landau and prepared to mount to the top to see a famous piece of paper the very piece of parchment that set loose this scourge of protestantism on a catholic world luther's protest we creaked up it took us a good hour from the elizabethan kirche to the platz or castle garden a level platform next to the schloss two or three of feet looking guns were planted in telling enquanios set in little stunted wild currant bushes this used to be the garden of the castle where the lords thereof could walk abroad as we did and stretch their legs and survey the river lahn many feet below winding like a silver ribbon alongside the railway line a jet black one nearly parallel at least that is what we saw and for the rest the view must have been much the same 
I was exhausted as one who has mounted a mountain by the aid of a rack and pinion railway. And the clumsy old-fashioned Landau waited for us, and we found a custodian, and he rattled the customary keys and looked as if he disliked being disturbed. He led us into the large Rittersaal with the painted ceiling, with the immense fireplace and the wide window seats cut into the thickness of the wall. The usual suits of armour, made presumably for dwarfs, were standing about. We went through this hall up a flight of stone stairs and were ushered into a large room above, fitted with glass cases containing sheets of parchment written in crabbed characters, the handwriting used in Shakespeare's three authentic signatures, which are actually written in German characters, and with great fat seals as big nay in some cases bigger than themselves depending from them by unpleasant-looking strings these bulli represent the papal bulls that used to puzzle the child mind so much in the pages of mrs markham there they are many and many of them small bits of discoloured parchment that were once received by kings and princes and meant ruin to them in theirs often enough it is prots at any rate, who have done away with that. And there I came into collision with the views of Joseph Leopold again, and for the next five minutes went modestly hither and thither, saying nothing, but peeping into this case and that case, and listening to his instruction. I saw the original of the famous sign manual of Charlemagne, the four-forked cross like the top of the hilt of a medieval sword that used to hold my childish eyes, ever on the lookout for the concrete image at the top of one of Mrs. Markham's vivacious chapters. How ineffably childish my interest, compounded more of association than knowledge, must have seemed to the student who had ferreted out his facts for himself in many hours of patient poring over originals. And then there came suddenly the unpretending signature of Martin Luther, and the warrant that gave Protestantism to the world. Even Joseph Leopold, whose historical interest goes side by side with his religious fervour, could not resist pointing out to me the brave up-and-down strokes of Luther, Zwingli, Martin Busser, and the rest of the men who lit this candle, by whose beams we in England walked at least a little way. When I was a child, I was made to read aloud in the evenings out of a tiny Elsevier volume, the first volume of Robertson's History of Charles V. And in the daytime I was also going through my first term at a high school. One morning towards the end of term time, we were set to write an original composition in one hour from starting. A sufficient task for a schoolgirl of ten or eleven. Our subject was the life of a hero, any hero. And on the spur of the moment, and the terrible clock hanging just over my head, I chose for my hero Martin Luther. It was because I had the night before read as far as the lively scene of Luther's interposition with regard to the selling of indulgences by the villainous Friar Tetzel. These are, of course, Robertson's characterizations. This was as far as I had gone in the volume. After scribbling away with a full pen for three-quarters of an hour, I had nothing more to write about. I knew no more about Luther 
So, after I had nibbled my pen frantically for twenty minutes, the clock face frightened me, and I closed a very minute and detailed account of the reformer's earliest years up to the Tetzel incident with this sentence. A mirth-provoking family heirloom. Luther was never brought to justice, but died on his bed. This schoolgirl ineptitude ought not to have occurred to me in this connection, nor surely ought I to have fondly related it to Joseph Leopold, or at any rate not within these walls. He was walking about in a state of ecstasy, becoming rather to his calling of historical novelist than to his severe religious views. There, he was saying to his mother, there, that is what I have brought you to see, the protest of Zwingli, Luther and Bucer. That bit of paper is Protestantism. It all began with the signing of that bit of paper. And turning to me, that is what you mean when you say you are a Protestant. But I don't say it, I remarked helplessly, as so many times before. I even deny it. Useless. A prot I am, and seemingly must remain so in the eyes of this black papist. End of section 12